The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. You know what that tells us? God sees. God sees. His ears are open to their prayer. You know what that tells us? God hears. And the verse goes on to say, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know what that tells us? He judges and He holds accountable. And you know what? The judgment part, that's not on us. That's on God. He sees, He hears, He judges, and in the end, it's all going to work out okay. You believe that this morning? That's seen in Acts chapter 12, which is where we're at this morning, Acts chapter 12. We looked last week at verses 5 through 19, and in that passage last week, we discovered that Peter was in jail, the church prayed, and God delivered Peter. Peter was in jail, God saw. The church prayed, God heard. Peter was delivered, God brought judgment on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And so we can recognize that. This same formula is also seen today in Acts chapter 12. At the end of the passage, we're looking at verses 20 to 25. And we're seeing that the people are praying. It's a difficult time, and yet God hears, God sees, God delivers, and God judges. We are reminded over and over again in Scripture, and Acts 12 is certainly another reminder, that God hears and answers prayer. Do you believe that this morning? God hears and answers prayer. The power of prayer. If I could say anything to you in these days, in these messages from the middle part of the gospel, the book of Acts, I would say to you, be reminded that the power of prayer changes lives, it changes circumstances, and it brings God's will into every circumstance and picture. So notice something important about prayer. Prayer does not cause God to act the way we want him to. God is not a genie. And uh, he doesn't just pop out and say, give me three wishes. I'll give you three wishes. He doesn't do that. Prayer is not God responding to our request. Prayer is us yielding to God's will so that we wind up praying what God already wants to be doing. And that's something important for us to recognize. So today we're in Acts chapter 12, verses 20 to 25. And here we find the power of God described and, the, and the, advent, the advancement of the gospel, and understand this, is remind, we're reminded of it here, nothing will stop the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing will stop the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we, when we truly grasp that, it puts everything into perspective. When we truly grasp that, it helps us to get our priorities in life lined up so that we can be doing the things that God has called us to do. So with that great thought in mind, that there's nothing that will ever become a wall to the gospel. There's nothing that will ever hold the gospel back from being proclaimed and from people believing. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, make our prayers more than just religious exercises. Lord, make our prayers more than just the next thing on the list that we check off and keep moving. But rather, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us the truth of your word. Give us hearts to hear. Give us hearts after God. 
Help us to see our circumstances not in a worldly, humanistic way, but to see our circumstances as divine appointments and whether our circumstances are positive or negative to recognize that you work in the midst of our circumstances to accomplish your will and to give us, your servants, joy even in the midst of great difficulty. Lord, remind us today that you see. Remind us today that you hear. Remind us today, Lord, that you judge and you make everything right. Therefore, give us peace, purpose, and passion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to look at the last part of the 12th chapter of Acts. We're working our way through this great book of the Bible. We're looking at the overall theme of living a life on mission, recognizing there's a great mission that God has that every man, woman, boy, and girl come to know Jesus as Savior, and God invites us to join Him by living a life on mission. So, so as always, I want to ask the question this morning, and that is, how is your life, how is my life, how are our lives lining up by, by living out our purpose of living life on mission? In what ways this past week was your life a life on mission? And in what ways do you see coming up this next week that your life will be a life on mission? I want to jump down to the end of, uh, of the story today. We'll look at verses 24 and 25 at the, here at the beginning. Uh, and this is the conclusion, and we'll come back to it. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That's really a key verse in this passage. The word of God both increased and it multiplied. Why? Because regardless of the circumstances, the gospel goes forth. I didn't put that in your notes, but I'm, I'm going to say it again before I forget it. The, the, what did I just say? <laughs> regardless of the circumstances. The gospel will go forth. I was just checking to make sure. Thank you, Ann, for listening. <laughs> Regardless of any circumstances, the gospel goes forth. Nothing can hold the gospel back. But, remember that word but? It's a word of contrast. This might be happening over here. But means there's something over here where God is at work, even if it's unseen. The circumstances may seem negative, but the word of God will increase and multiply. Verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so we see it all ended on a, on a positive note. The gospel is going forth. The church is experiencing growth. The Spirit of God is at work. People who are outside of a relationship with God through faith in Christ are coming to know Jesus as Savior. Some really good things are happening. But now let's jump up to the beginning of this section, starting in verse number 20. It begins with these words. Now, Herod. Now, Herod. You may have heard the name Herod. It's all throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. And here we see it again in the book of Acts. Now, now Herod. The name Herod is a family name. The, name, the, the same way that, that my last name, Francis, is a, is a family name. The same way that Al's last name, Huffman, is a family name. And so, so Herod is a, a family name of a ruling family in the area of the nation of Israel under the control of the Romans, starting at about 37 B.C., before Jesus was born, and extending until about the year 95 A.D., after the death of Christ. And so for about 132 years... This family, the Herodians, as they're known, the Herods, they were in charge in and around the area of Israel. Let me introduce you to, to four 
of the Herods that we read about in the Scripture. And maybe it'll put some context here. The first is Herod the Great. You may have heard that name. Herod the Great ruled from the year 37 B.C. until 4 B.C. He was called the King of the Jews. He was responsible for building the temple in Jerusalem, the great grand temple that was there in the life of Christ. He's the one to whom the, the, the wise men showed up and, and, uh, and, and said that the, a new king had been born. And when Herod said, when you find out where he is, come back and let me know. And the wise men went home a different route. Herod is the one. This Herod is the one that ordered the killing of all the babies two years and under in and around Bethlehem. You've heard that story, Matthew chapter 2. Herod, that's Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in 4 BC and his son, Herod Antipas, became the next ruling member of the Herodian family. He was the son of Herod the Great. It is this Herod, Herod Antipas, that is responsible for killing John the Baptist, had him beheaded. It is this Herod that mocked Jesus. When Jesus was brought before him, right before he was crucified, he mocked Jesus and he dressed him in royal robes to make fun of him and he sent him on to, uh, to Pilate and Pilate is the one who ultimately condemned Jesus. His son, Herod Agrippa, ruled from the year 37 to the year 44, only seven years He's the grandson of Herod the Great. He's the one that we read about last week that had James, the apostle, had James, the brother of John. He had James put to death by the sword. This is the one, Herod Agrippa. He also is the one that imprisoned Peter, intending to kill him. And uh, Peter, we read about last week, escaped. He's the one we're reading about today. When we read about Herod, this is the Herod we're reading about, Herod Agrippa. Notice he only ruled for about seven years. We'll understand why in a few moments. But then the fourth member of the Herodian family I'll mention is Herod Agrippa II. I guess in that day they didn't call him Junior. But Herod Agrippa II ruled from the year 44 all the way to the year 95. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He's the one that we'll read about when we get to Acts chapter 26 that Paul appeared before Agrippa and he gave his testimony. And this Herod, Herod Agrippa, is the one that famously asked Paul. He said, Paul, in such a short time, do you think you're going to convince me to become a Christian? And it is this Herod, the fourth Herod to rule, the, 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 the ancestral lineage of which uh, uh, put to death babies and put to death John the Baptist and mocked Jesus and this lineage that put to death James the Apostle and was planning to kill Peter. And now this lineage, when he says to, to Paul, you think you can convince me to be a Christian? And Paul says to him, this man from an evil family, Paul says, not only you, but everybody. That's the, that's the strength of the gospel, isn't it? Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. The gospel is for you. So, so that's the Herod that we're reading about here, uh, Herod Agrippa. And, uh, and so, so it says in verse 20, now, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And I want you to notice a map up here on the, on the screen here. And then there's the Mediterranean Sea. And, uh, and right here on my little pointer, if it's going to work, here's Israel right around here. And, uh, and, and I just noticed it looks like it's, it's, in a, it's fuzzy, isn't it? Is it just me? A little fuzzy. But so, so here is Israel right here. And right up in this area here, that's where Tyre and Sidon are, the upper uh, northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And so, so that's where he's talking about here. And it says, he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we don't know why he was angry with them. It doesn't say why, it just says that he was. And, and, and this is a, a, an area that had a strong, long-lasting dependence on Israel. Verse 20 also says, They, these people of Tyre and Sidon, they came to Herod with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on Israel for food. So there was a need they had. Israel supplied that need. And for some reason, they had upset the king and they wanted to smooth things out and be peaceful because the king was feeding them. So they, what they did was they went in and they bribed. That word, uh, when it says they persuaded Blastus, there's nothing like a few $20 bills to persuade somebody. So bribery, that's what was happening here. They persuaded or bribed Blastus, who was a member of the king's inner circle, royal circle, to give them an audience with the king. On verse 21 it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. So on that time, the Blastus lined it up. The king's going to speak. The people of Tyre and Sidon come. Uh, uh, Herod gets all dressed up in the finest of his royal robes and he goes out and it says he takes his seat on the throne which probably was a, a high seat with steps leading up to it. The people had gathered all around. It was an occasion of great pomp and circumstance and so now Herod begins and he speaks to them. He, he delivers an oration. That's more than just off the cuff. He's, he's prepared some remarks. His speechwriter has spared no expense and has, has created for him a great oration, kind of like the state of the union between Israel and Tyre and Sidon. It's going to be a big thing. One commentator said this, Here's an opportunity for the king to display his authority and for the delegates to please him with flattery. And I thought, what newspaper did they get this out of in the year 2020? Politics. Who would have thought it goes all the way back at least to the first century and as we well know long before. Politics is being played out here. The people upset the king. They depended on him for food. They come to the king who's going to give them a speech and they're going to respond with great flattery and everything's going to be smoothed over. That's so much of what happens it seems like in our world. Verse 22. As he was giving his oration, the people were shouting, The voice of a God! And not a man. What an oration Herod must have given on that occasion. He was patting himself on the back. They were patting him on the back verbally. The voice of a God. Not even a man. He's the best speaker we've ever heard. You must be from heaven. You are heaven sent. You are divine. You can't be just a man. You are obviously a God that's been sent to us. That's what was going on here. Now, the motivation for the people of Tyre and Sidon was not the great oration skills or the pomp and the circumstance of Herod. Their motivation was they needed food on their table. This is an example in Scripture, but it's also an example we see played out throughout our history as a nation and the history of the world. When people are dependent on someone else for something that they need, and that person has to be persuaded... People would go to any lengths and say anything and do anything to get what they need from that person. So that's what's going on here. That's what's here in, clearly in the text. The people were shouting. The people were wanting their food. They were doing whatever it takes. 
And, uh, and Warren Wiersbe, the commentator and pastor, says this, they told him that he was a God and he loved every minute of it. It was a great love fest back and forth. And many people, both in the ancient world and in our world today, go through the same thing. It might be a king. It might be a president. It might be a boss. It might be in your home. But the way to get people to do what you want is to give them all kinds of even false flattery. That's what's happening here. And, and you know, many in history have, have attempted to pronounce judgment on God or to make themselves or others uh, appear to be a God. On, on both sides of the spectrum, there, there are those folks that, that will try to bring God down to being a human, a human level, to the human level, and saying, oh, you, you sir, you man, you're a God, or to, 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 to elevate humanity to the level of God. Let me give you a couple of examples that, that I think are hilarious. One is... Uh, the, the 1800s philosopher Nietzsche. I don't know if you've ever heard of, of Nietzsche from the 1800s. Nietzsche famously said, God is dead. You ever heard of that? God is dead. Nietzsche in the year 1883. Well, uh, if you were to put that on a billboard, the billboard would be something like this. Uh, God is dead from Nietzsche. And then under it would say, Nietzsche is dead from God. <laughs> I love that. Uh, in the year 1900, uh, Nietzsche died. God, however, is still on his throne. Uh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you remember the, the singing group called the Beatles? You ever heard of that little group called the Beatles? Uh, some have called them the most influential rock band in rock and roll history. And uh, in March of 1966, Rolling Stone magazine interviewed the Beatles, John Lennon in particular, and John Lennon is quoted as saying this, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I know I'm right, and I'll be proved right. In fact, we're more popular than Jesus now. Woo! That's, 19, that's about 50 years ago. Interestingly, as, as a follow-up to that, a newspaper called the Washington Examiner, December 23, 2015, had a headline that said, Millennials ask, Who are the Beatles? And why are they on Spotify? Now, if you know who the Beatles are, you probably don't know what Spotify is. I'm not going to try to explain it. <laughs> and if you know what Spotify is, you may not know who the Beatles are. So it kind of goes both ways. The point is made, however, that 50 years later, Jesus is doing just fine. And the Beatles, however popular they may have been or are, uh, are only going to be a footnote in history when it's all said and done. Coming up in the future, according to the scripture, there's going to be uh, what the Bible calls a man of lawlessness. We read about him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this man of lawlessness, it says, in, beginning in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this man's going to walk into the temple... The temple's not there yet, by the way. He's going to walk into the temple, and he's going to sit down, and he's going to say, God is here. Verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus, notice this, will kill with the breath of his mouth. You know what that means? A word. A word. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When Jesus comes back, it will be clear that this man of lawlessness is not God. 
and that Jesus is. Jesus takes this whole thing of who God is very seriously. Uh, he has done that all throughout history. There, you, you can say it this way. There's only one God, and it ain't you. There's only one, and it ain't you. Uh, another example of that we find in Acts chapter 12. This is Herod again on the throne giving the oration and the people have gathered and they're, and they're saying, you're a God, you're not a man. You're a God, come down to, to, to give us this. And he is eating it up. And verse 23 says, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, that's Herod, struck him down because he did not give God the glory. They were calling him a God and he was accepting that and taking great pride in that. He, he may have, have stood up from his throne in all of his robes. He may have walked around to, to this group over here and, and just listened as they shouted out what a God he was. And, and perhaps he said, oh, well, thank you for sharing those words about me. They are true, by the way. And he, he could have gone over to this side as they, they thunderously applauded because they wanted to outdo this group over here. And, and he said, oh, you, you shouldn't, but keep saying those words. He was just eating it up. And all of a sudden, it says here, the angel and angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit. Before a fall, one historian said he took to himself that which belongs only to God. That is not a place that we can go. The angel struck him down. Well, in chapter 12, verse 7, it was an angel of the Lord that delivered Peter and it helped him to escape from the prison. Here in, in verse 23, it is the angel of the Lord that brought uh, a judgment to Herod for his pride. Uh, angel activity in Scripture. Listen, all throughout Scripture, angels are mentioned 273 times in Scripture. They're, they're there. They're prominent all throughout. They're listed in 34 of the 66 books of the Bible, refers to and talks about angels in some capacity. Angels report to God. They are messengers of God. They are servants of God. They, they are there to glorify God, to worship God. Angels help people. They bring comfort. They bring deliverance. But you know what they do? They also carry out God's judgment. We'll be mindful to recognize that as God judges, sometimes it's simply by the word of his mouth. That's all he needs. And sometimes he uses his angels. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 19, we see a story of an angel who delivered God's judgment on an enemy of God. 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 20, it says, Isaiah, that's Isaiah the prophet, sent to King Hezekiah, the king of Israel, and he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who was the enemy, God says, I've heard your prayer. God sees, God hears, God judges. That's not just a one-time event. We see it all throughout history, all throughout the scriptures, and we know that the same is true today. You know that, right? The same principles are here today. God sees, God hears, God judges. You know what we ought to be doing? What's our part in there? We pray. We pray. To Sennacherib, God says this in 2 Kings 19, 22. God says to Sennacherib, Whom have you mocked and reviled? God says, Who are you talking about? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. That's who you're mocking. You're mocking God. 
By your messengers, you have mocked the Lord. But I know, verse 27, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. You know why? Because God sees. He sees. Verse 28, because you have raged against me, I will. Remember, God sees, God hears, and God, what is it? He judges. Because you have raged against me, Sennacherib, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. The the Assyrians were threatening to come and march against Jerusalem. The people cried out in prayer, and God says, I see, I hear, and I will judge, I will deliver. And here's the imagery of a hook in the nose and a bit in the mouth like you would do a horse or another animal. And I just take that, that, that leash and I just pull you away. Verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to this city. Verse 34. For I will defend the city to save it. Verse 35. And that night an angel of the Lord, one angel, an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. God sees, God hears, God judges. We also see, secondly, the angel enforcing God's judgment here against Herod, Herod Agrippa. Acts chapter 12 and verse 23, for allowing himself to be called a God. Verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, it doesn't say how long of a time frame this is. The the Jewish historian Josephus says that that he was struck down in the middle of his speech and that he lasted for five days writhing in pain. And I guess however they diagnosed, was it a, uh, you know, it's, it's not like one of these movies now where the body just suddenly, in, in, while everybody's watching at the speech, just dissolves into a big pile of worms. That's not what happened, but uh, he certainly was struck down by the angel. Let me, let me take just a few minutes here and, and kind of put this episode into perspective. I don't know if you, well, I know all of you read my little article in, in the news brief every single week. Amen. Don't, don't, lie, don't lie. So anyway, so, so I, I put a note in there. That I almost overlooked this passage of Scripture. I've read it before, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting the major themes here in the, in the book of Acts. And uh, I almost just, just moved on to 13, chapter 1, uh, chapter 13. I love that. I can't wait to get there next week, by the way. But I couldn't get past this passage. A couple of lessons that are important for us. I'll be all too brief, but I want to share them with you. The first lesson we can learn is this. It might look bad, but God is always in control. It might look bad, but God is always in control. If you were to read the entirety of Acts chapter 12 from beginning to end, you'd see the beginning and the end almost like opposite bookends. Part 1, part 2. At the beginning of chapter 12, here's what's going on. Herod, Agrippa, Herod seems to be in control. James, the apostle, has just been put to death. Peter is in prison, and everybody knows he's next. 
The church seems to be losing the battle and it seems like they're going down because their leaders are getting knocked off one at a time and there's nothing that can be done except where it says there, but the church is praying. Here at the beginning of chapter 12, it looks like chapter 12 might be the last chapter. (laughs) Then you get to the end of chapter 12. God is in control at the end of chapter 12. Herod is dead at the end of chapter 12. Peter, who was, who was in prison waiting to be killed, he's free. And the church, instead of shrinking back and hiding and praying, the church is multiplying and praising. Do you know why? Because God sees, God hears, God judges. That's awesome. He's always in control. What we can learn from that is simply this. What are your, what are your circumstances? What are the difficulties of your circumstances? You might be a, you might, your circumstances might be like Acts chapter 12 at the beginning where it looks like this is happening and it's bad. This is happening and that's bad. This is happening and that's bad. And all you can do, all you can do, all you've got left is to pray. Prayer should never be our last resort. It should be our first resort. And not just our first resort, but our way of life. But your circumstances right now might be like the beginning of Acts chapter 12. It looks like it's all going to fall apart. But I want to remind you that Acts chapter 12, the end, is coming. It might be soon. It might be later. It might even be into eternity. But you know what? God sees. God hears. God judges. And God always makes it right. Why? Because God is in control. Let me give you a second lesson we can learn from this this morning. And that is that God uses His angels to accomplish His will. There have been some books written about angels. Billy Graham has written a good book about angels years ago. Other books have been written about angels. There are some really fantastical, crazy things that have been written about angels with all kinds of names and levels and hierarchies and all these things that are outside of the Bible. The Bible gives us plenty to to know about angels, but it doesn't answer all of our questions. There there are some great things that we can understand about how God uses His angels to accomplish His will. And even though we don't fully understand it because God doesn't intend for us to fully understand it, what we do know, among other things, is this. From Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, speaking of angels, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. You know what angels are? Among all that they do, they serve God by encouraging us. They serve God by encouraging and being with us. How many times have any of us visibly seen an angel show up and do something? I don't think any of us have. I never have. How many of us have, have ever seen the, 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 the movement of a branch of, 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 uh, on a tree with leaves on it and say, oh, there goes an angel? If you ever don't, don't do that. Some people have done things like that. I hope this doesn't apply to any of you, but years ago at a previous church, I went to the hospital to see a lady having surgery. She had, you remember those little angel pins? You remember those little angel pins? Little, little idle pins I heard somebody call them one time. She had like 15 of those on her pillowcase. And she said, Pastor Mark, I'm going to be fine. I've got all these angel pins right here to watch over me. I said, listen, that's not what makes you fine. What makes you fine is Jesus. And he uses his angels, yes. But they're not numbered with birthstones. And they don't have names and hierarchies. It's Jesus. We don't need anything else but Jesus. One angel. One. 
is powerful enough to take out at least 185,000. God's got it under control. A third lesson we can learn is this. God does not always judge evil quickly, but He always judges evil. It can never be quick enough for us, could it? In our view, or I'll just speak from my, in my view, that the moment somebody has an evil thought and evil intent, I wish God would just go ahead and step in and take that person out. You know why I'm glad he doesn't do that? Because that would have been me. <laughs> that would have been me a hundred times. I'm so thankful that God in his wisdom holds back and executes his judgment on his timetable always according to his good and perfect will. This dynasty of the Herodian family, four generations, 132 years, how many times was evil plotted against the will of God, the purpose of God, and the people of God? By this family, how many times could God not have stepped in at any moment and stopped it from happening? How many mothers cried out because their two-year-old sons were killed because the wise men chose not to go back and see the king? How many uh, people were, were, were disillusioned and, and turned even away from, from God by the evil conducted by this family? How many hearts were broken when James was put to death by the sword? How many people were offended when Herod mocked Jesus and dressed him up in a royal robe to make fun of him? How many times could God have stepped into those circumstances, but he chose not to? That's God's purpose, God's plan, God's will, but it's His call. And just because God does not judge evil on our timetable, listen, it doesn't mean God is not going to judge evil. He will. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, one, spurned the Son of God, And secondly, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has thirdly, outraged the spirit of grace. What do you have to do to cause the spirit of grace to be outraged? You just reject Jesus, the Son of God. For we know him who said, this is what God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Here's what we need to understand. Judgment is not ours to execute. That's God's. And any time we take it on ourselves to execute judgment, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. He's going to take care of it, isn't he? Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fourth lesson we can learn. Prayer works. Prayer works. Now, if you were to look at the prayer life of the average Christian, you would think that prayer is not work. It's just simply a formality that people bow their head, close their eyes, think about the ball game, or put their laundry list together, and then they say amen and open their eyes. But prayer works. Acts chapter 12 and verse 5. We talked about it last week as our theme verse. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. For him to God by the church praying specifically for God to move in these circumstances. And you know what? God saw, God heard, and what did he do? God judged and delivered. 
last Wednesday night, we took our, our, our Wednesday night uh, service and we dedicated it to earnest prayer. And we had a great time in there. Those of you that were there, we're going to do the same thing this week and we're going to continue that for at least another week or two. We'd love to have you come. If you haven't, it'd be a good time to step in and see how we come together and pray earnestly for God's purpose, plan, and ministry at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Lastly, the last lesson we learn and reminded of, the gospel will advance. The gospel will advance. The gospel will go forward. There, there's nothing you can do to stop the gospel. People down through history have tried. Some are recorded in Scripture. Some are recorded in history. But there, there's nothing anyone can do to stop the advancement of the gospel. Why? Because the advancement of the gospel is the purpose, plan, and will of God that men and women and boys and girls in all generations would come to know Jesus Christ. Notice verse 24. But... There's our word of contrast. Herod now, who was in control at the beginning, he's now dead. And the contrast of that, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Despite persecution, despite setbacks, despite the loss of leaders, it is a God thing for the gospel to go forth. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be invested in a God thing. A God thing. I don't want to get to the end and realize I've wasted my time on this silly event or this silly thing or that silly thing. Now, there's lots of silly things that are fine for us to be entertained and have fun, all those things. But I want to invest the priority of my life in a God thing. And I want to hear that my life counted for the gospel when I get to the end and stand before God. And notice here, this is another example that human names and different circumstances will change. It's not about the person. It's not about the circumstance, but God is always in control, bringing about his good and perfect will. We're going to sing a great hymn in just a minute. It's called Have Faith in God. I love the chorus of Have Faith in God. It says this, have faith in God. He's on his throne. Amen. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He sees. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be here at the front and we'll be glad to hang out with you if you'd like to come down even while we're singing. Rodney will be here and be around and available too. So let's pray together. And Al's going to lead us. Let's make this a great hymn of faith and an expression of our obedience and faith to the Lord Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you see. Thank you that you hear. Thank you that you bring judgment, which sometimes means deliverance of your people and sometimes means judgment carried out on those who are evil. Make us mindful to be involved in things that are eternal. Help us, Lord, to determine to invest our very soul and life in the things of the advancement of the gospel. And when obstacles come, just simply recognize, Lord, you see it, you hear our prayers, you bring the judgment. It's all about you, Lord. Take the burden off of us when we try to pick it up. Lord, use us some way this week that you might lay a soul upon our heart for whom we can share our story of salvation. Lord, be with us this week as we face a difficult circumstance and to recognize you see, you hear, and you deliver. 
Help us, Lord, to recognize that even in the midst of our difficult circumstances, you are at work wanting to use each of us in our circumstances to bring glory and honor to you and to your name, your cause and your purpose, that you want to use us, Lord, even in our difficulties, to influence someone towards Jesus. Help us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to have faith in God. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.